0: You're listening to Nothing Funny About Money. I'm Matt Gorin. And I'm Michael Thomas. As any longtime listener of the show can attest, personal finance can be confusing.
1: Yeah, I think any human being can attest to that, Matt.
0: Sure. So all the more reason to get some help. Of course, that's exactly
1: what financial advisors are there for. We talk a lot about reaching out. You know what? It can actually be pretty confusing about who to talk to. Our view of the profession is that advisors should put their clients' interests first But the same can't be said for all advisors. In fact, we're in the midst of a national debate on
0: whether advisors should be fiduciaries. And more than that, just who can even call
1: themselves advisors? So on this episode, how to pick a financial advisor.
0: So stay tuned as we figure out how to separate the good guys from the bad.
1: Before we go any further, what is the definition of a financial advisor? There are so many people who say that they are a financial advisor. So, for instance, we actually had this lady come over to the house. She's like, yeah, I'm a financial advisor, and I just wanted to come in and check in with you all. And I'm like, what? First, I'm thinking financial infidelity, right? My Uh -uh. my wife is (laughs) secretly seeing a financial planner. (laughs) It's like the
0: good kind of financial. <laughs> it's a good guy, right?
1: She's secretly seeking a seeking a financial advisor without me. Uh, but the lady who came to the house, she actually was a um, insurance salesperson. So she wasn't coming to actually see if our spending plans were good, if we had a good uh, wealth position, what type of assets are we currently. She was coming to sell an in insurance, but. The way that she had initiated the conversation with me said, I'm a financial planner. I want to come and serve your household. There is a place
0: (laughs) for insurance products in a financial plan. Absolutely. But this brings up the point that literally anyone can call themselves a financial advisor. So that's true for people who work in the financial services industry. Mm -hmm. It's actually true for anybody. There's no rule. If we look at other professions like doctors and lawyers and accountants, all of these people have to get a certain designation. Yes. Like if you're a doctor, you got to get an MD.
1: Absolutely. So I know that my doctor has Absolutely. gone to medical school. And there's, and there's one, right? There's one official designation that everybody can look to and say that this is the standard of trust. And we attribute some type of value to that individual, and we know what the expectation should be. Right. I was an accountant for several years. Like the expectation was that I'm a bean counter. Like that's
2: typically what it was. It is
1: you could just put us in an office, close the door, and we just go through your stuff and we're gonna bring you some bad news eventually. Like, but we're good for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there's this expectation of trust
0: and professionalism. Absolutely. Financial advisors don't need to have any credential. Of course, many of them do. Yes. And our profession is known for the alphabet soup behind our names. So we have eight hundred different letters. What do those letters even mean?
1: Actually, what's interesting is that I know a gentleman who has the alphabet soup, uh, the CFP, CFA, Chartered Financial, whatever it may be. And when people come into his office, he provides financial planning services. He puts up his CPA certification on his wall and nothing else. Because what he knows about the industry and the market is that people trust him more with having CPA up as opposed to having the alphabet soup. And that is a lot due to a lot of the confusion, as you're alluding to. Yeah. Now that there is well, CPA
0: is a gold standard. It is. The closest financial <laughs> advising has to that standard is the CFP, Certified Financial Planner. Absolutely. But the reason that that is seen by some people as the standard is because the CFP board markets itself so
1: heavily. Yes. And they've, they've done an amazing job. And, you know, there's a lot of noise in the market. And it is very difficult right now for a lot of people, especially when it comes to finances, because finances is a very touchy-feely topic, and nobody just wants to randomly go disclose their financial picture to just anyone, right? So that that gold standard, that uh, actually means a lot, because that's a very vulnerable position that you're in. You absolutely want to trust somebody and the C F P has done a good job of branding themselves that way. If
0: the credential gets people to trust you a little bit and get you in the door, then it's doing its job. Like we had said, the CFP might be considered by some to be the gold standard. It is the hardest to get of all the credentials out there that is Which would
1: actually kind of make me feel good too. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Anybody like anybody barriers of entry, anybody just can't do this. Yeah, and that's fair enough, but they did give me one. So,
0: how well, hard could it possibly right. be? So, well, a CFP might not be for everyone because Completely in those great. CFP programs, they focus on high net worth clients mm-hmm. or clients who have really high income. And when I'm saying high net worth, I mean millions of dollars. I'm not talking about you've got 50 grand in the bank and Absolutely. you feel comfortable. So, the content that these folks learn about may have nothing to do with your financial situation in which case you
1: might be better off finding someone with different credentials. Absolutely, completely agree. There are different spaces, right, as it relates to financial services. So there's definitely the the financial planning space, and you have uh, CFPs in that space. Uh, there's also something that's kind of like in the middle a little bit with regards to financial counseling and financial coaching. There's a designation there. That's the accredited financial counselor designation. And then there are actually there are a lot of these other financial coaching designations that that are cropping up. And then lastly, there's also a space that's that's financial therapy that's emerging and becoming more and more of a thing. So, as you know, Matt and I have this conversation. We're definitely going to be talking about the CFP side of it. There are these other services that are out there that actually can serve individuals where they are as it relates to where they're in their life cycle and also – what types of resources they have, and what types of planning that actually suits their needs. So if you are someone who has a high net worth and can afford it,
0: maybe go the CFP route. If you have issues related to your high net worth, maybe go the CFP route. But if your problems with money are more emotional or relational, maybe go to the financial therapist or go to the accredited financial counselor. That's a better fit. And there are people who specialize not only in these big picture issues of money management versus money and emotions. They're people who focus on all sorts of different parts of our lives. Like if you're going through a divorce right now, Absolutely. there are financial advisors who are credentialed in finances related to divorce.
1: Yes. And, you know, it's it's unfortunate to, you know, kind of discuss divorce rates and things of that nature. Uh, I'm an accredited financial counselor and have been for, for several years now. And I actually get a lot of clients who, have, who are either contemplating divorce or are going through the divorce process. And what's unfortunate about this is that when I get them, usually these are individuals who've never been involved with the finances. They've yeah. never seen a tax statement. They don't know what the investment portfolio looks like. They've never paid a bill. If you're in that bucket of things, you don't go to a CFO necessarily for that service, you would really go to a financial counselor or financial coach and then somebody who has a designation to work with individuals who are navigating a space. But what we're saying is that there is a lot more to this space than just a CFP. That's a place where we generally start. But there are a lot of entities that can serve you all in your household. And this brings up an idea that bounces in my head is who even needs an advisor? Absolutely.
0: So we've got all these advisors out there who should <laughs> even go And when I talk to people about this, what I very commonly hear is someone says, oh, I know advisors are out there, but I don't make enough money.
1: Absolutely. It's It's not worth going. How do you feel about that? Is that why we go see an advisor? I'll be honest with you. If you don't have the resources and you go to a financial planning firm that is a wealth management advisory firm, because from a business model perspective, if I'm going to spend an hour, five hours with an individual that can only pay me, if they can pay me $150 for those hours, compared to someone that I'm working with who has $5 million or $10 million for that same amount of time, from a business standpoint, it just does not make sense from a business model standpoint. Some people feel hesitant
0: about paying, say, $3,000 a year for financial advice, Absolutely. which is a pretty common fee. Absolutely. But there are folks out there spending 3000 a year for financial advice. Absolutely. So recognize how much money some of these advisors are making, and you realize quickly why they put up these barriers.
1: Absolutely.
0: There are the advisors out there who will work with the lower net worth people, people with the lower income. There's all these new business models popping up. Mm -hmm. So I really don't like the idea that I don't have enough money. Advising is not for me. Because to me, it has nothing to do with how much money you have. Absolutely. It's all about, nothing. to me, how complex is your financial situation? Agreed. And how armed are you to deal with that? So-, so if the
1: complexity is too much for you, go see an advisor. And you know, And I love the way that you framed it that way. If it's too much for you, right? Because there are certain things that people are navigating because they lack financial literacy or they've never engaged with a certain thing. Because maybe there is no generational wealth in your family. So maybe you've never really dealt with the complexities of taxation and things of that nature where other people think it's commonplace that, oh, yeah, you have all these business deductions and all that good stuff. Yeah, everybody knows this. Well, maybe everybody <laughs> doesn't know that. Right. <laughs> right? It's, it's, so I love the idea the, the your complexity because we are all starting at different places. And something that may be complex to you may not be complex to someone else. Yeah.
0: And even you're saying taxes, which I think most people feel are complicated. But even some things that I think most of us feel are not complicated, like keep a monthly budget. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of people who don't have the skill set or the experience to even keep a monthly budget. And that's not to say that they're not smart people or that they couldn't do it. But as you said, they didn't grow up with a family that talks about budgeting. Mm -mm. So if you're struggling even with that, don't. Be too proud. Go and talk to somebody. And Absolutely. there are plenty of advisors out there who will help you with that.
1: Yeah, you know, what's interesting is it's for men oh, in men, terms yeah. of just being overconfident. Men are the worst. And I think a, we can all agree you know, on that. The, uh, yeah, this is the thing, though. <laughs> men typically have this drive to want to care for their household and for their family and to provide for their household and their family. And I really want to challenge any men out here who are listening to this this right now. If you don't know and you don't know enough and you're trying to engage in risky behaviors that could ultimately compromise the welfare of your household, are you really doing what's in the best interest of your household? Whatever that complexity is for you, just know that there are people who want to help you. And guess what? They'll still allow for you to feel like you're the king of the house. (laughs) (laughs) You won't won't even have to say that you went and saw somebody. Right. But we just want you to be in a best position to ensure that you're actually doing what you're wanting to do for your household. Kings have advisors. I completely agree The president
0: has a cabinet, okay? For men who won't ask for directions in the grocery store and spend 30 minutes looking for the soup— It's tough, I get it, to go out and ask for help. We've all been there. But, you know, man up, I guess, (laughs) and uh, go get your cabinet or your your kingly advisors. And we're talking about the budget stuff, uh, again, on the relatively low complexity end for a lot of folks. But if you are a small business owner, please go get financial advice. It is so complicated to successfully run a small business. There are people who can help you. If you are trying to do education funding for your kids, it might seem like a straightforward thing to just throw some money aside. It is not that easy to make the most use of the money. This stuff gets so complicated so quickly. Book the meeting. Have somebody help you. We've got to take a break for now. But before we go, quiz time. What percent of Americans use a financial advisor? Think about it, mull it over, make bets with your friends. We'll get you that answer when we get back.
2: Support for Nothing Funny About Money comes from Elwood and Getz, Athens-only wealth management firm registered with the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors, offering fee-only comprehensive retirement planning. AthensWealthManagement.com
3: Can anybody find me financial advice? Yeah. I work hard. She works hard. Every day of my life. I work till I ache my bones. At the end. At the end of the day. I take home my heart and pay all on my own. The sales pitch, the promise, the tech talk. I'm about to give up on it all. Somebody, 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 can anybody find me? Financial advice. be me a financial advisor, 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 Fine. me a financial advisor. Can anybody find me financial advisor?
0: Welcome back. I'm Matt Gorin, here with Michael Thomas and Chris Shoup, and that was the Georgia Sirens, doing a cover of Queens, Somebody to Love. That's S.J. Ursery, Marty Winkler, Susan Staley, and Maggie Mason-Hunter. What a wonderful job. Before the break, we asked you, what percent of Americans have a financial advisor? What do you two think?
2: I'm going to go with 40%. Oh, I'm going with the under
1: here. I'm thinking 15 to 20%. You're actually
0: right on the number, Michael. It's 17%. Like like I told you, I do this, man. He does this for a living. It's right there. Less than one in every five people gets financial advice. To me, that's kind of
1: surprising, given all the things we said before. Why is that number so low? We've already alluded to this a little bit, but I think that one of the biggest issues is trust. I'm not sure what the numbers are, Matt. You may have some numbers here on this, but of course I, would, I do. I would say, of course you do. <laughs> I would say that it's trust because again, when we talk about personal finances and money, we're actually revealing a part of ourselves that most of us don't reveal to anybody. Let's just be honest. We would rather talk about sex than we will talk about money.
0: I'm totally in agreement with you. I think trust is the big reason The American Association of Individual Investors says that two-thirds of Americans don't trust financial advisors. Wow. And if you look online, Google search, trust a financial advisor, there are so many articles, like one from Medium.com, that's titled, (laughs) Why You Should Never Trust a Financial Advisor. Michael and I are ourselves financial advisors. We're in this world. Chris is not a financial advisor. What do you think? Should you trust us,
2: Chris? I think it has a lot of preconceived stereotypes that people have over anyone who makes their money off of your money. Instead of it being, well, this person is going to take me to a higher place financially, I think a lot of people feel like, why would I pay somebody part of my money to manage my money, especially if I feel like I don't have enough money to begin with? Yeah. So there's sort of that stigma that comes along with, well, now I'm just paying a guy to tell me goofy things that I already know. Like, you know, you really should have a budget. Yeah, I know. You really should save 20% of your paycheck. Well, I know. My problem is not what I should do. It's doing it. So can you be my discipline for me? Can you actually make me a more disciplined person?
0: Yes, It's kind of our own fault because we focus so much on investments and investment returns. Not many advisors talk about the more psychological side of what we do. The other issue is that some advisors are really not doing a good job. Absolutely. And according to the public records on advisors, about one in 11 have committed a serious ethical violation. Of that one in 11, only half of them got fired for it. Mm. And half of the ones that got fired were immediately hired
1: again by a different firm. If they did commit a serious act, they have to disclose that information. You don't have to go into an engagement with someone and feel powerless that you can't find information about them and whether or not they've had a checkered past. There's something called a broker check or you can actually get that information ahead of time and then really ask
0: the tough questions. There are some people who may never have had any serious ethical violation and yet still are charging more than is typical for the service they're providing. But most people have no clue how much they should be paying. The issue of fee transparency is especially problematic with 401ks and other retirement plans. We usually don't have a choice for our 401k provider, mm-hmm. when you sign up at your job, your employer has already picked the advisor and has already picked the funds that are available to you. Yeah. There's so many options. You get analysis paralysis Absolutely. and you
1: usually just listen to whatever the advisor has to tell you. With 401ks, again, the onus is on you. Basically, the conversation goes back to it's disclosed. And then have you actually effectively read the disclosures? And not just that, but do you actually understand what you've actually read? and does it make any sense to you. It's a completely different story. But that's how we've kind of got around this space, yeah. which causes more confusion.
0: When we look back to the 1970s, the fiduciary standard there actually only applies to the employer. Mm-hmm. It doesn't apply to the in- individual employees who are the investors. Mm-hmm. And that was going to change when the Department of Labor... Back in 2015, proposed a fiduciary rule that would apply to everybody mm-hmm. who's involved with the 401k. On its face, that rule was very simple investment advisors advising people who had money in a 401k had to put their interests first. Mm-hmm. A lot of people in the financial advising world came out against this rule. Which I didn't fully understand or agree with because, to me, the rule was pretty straightforward. And it just required advisors to be prudent. That was the buzzword, Mm -hmm. which means that they had to recommend products and services that were considered the best and charge fees that were typical. It wasn't give free advice or anything like that. And if they had any conflicts of interest, they had to be disclosed. This rule didn't
1: actually do too hot. What was proposed initially has gotten watered down. So it's not just like we're delaying this, but we have made a concession. We watered it down. We delay. We make another concession. We water it down. We delay. Now, we're recording this in late 2019. And as of this moment, there are no plans to revive the rule. Despite
0: the rule being dead, according to financial engines, over 90% of Americans were in favor of it. Which makes sense. I mean, who wouldn't be? Yeah, it's better for consumers. But the other side of it is that more than half of the people
1: surveyed think it's already a requirement. It is not. And while there is no requirement to be a fiduciary, a growing number of advisors are holding themselves to that standard anyway. And certain designations, like the
0: CFP and AFC, do require people to be fiduciaries when they're giving advice. And
1: certain professional organizations also have that mandate. Now, think about it. If they have the mandate, that means people who want to be a part of this opt into the mandate because they believe in this as well. And there are a lot of us in this space. One network that we are big fans of is the XY
0: Planning Network, founded by University of Georgia graduate Alan Moore. The XYPN brings together over a 1,000 fee-only advisors. And
1: anyone can go to xyplanningnetwork.com and find an advisor. Those folks are only paid by their clients, not through commissions. And they're all required to be fiduciaries. We know quite a few
0: members of XYPN and wanted to know, what's it like to be a financial advisor held to the fiduciary standard?
3: It's sort of like a fish who doesn't really know what water is, but they swim in it, you know, every moment of their lives.
0: Okay, you're going to have to unpack that for me. (laughs) That's Meg Bartelt, Principal Advisor at Flow Financial Planning.
3: My entire time in the financial planning profession has been in the fiduciary space. I, I worked for two different firms. Both of them were You know, act as fiduciaries, they're subject to the fiduciary standard. And now I and my own firm operate by the fiduciary standard, which simply put just means I have to put my client's interests ahead of my own.
0: Does everybody use that definition?
3: Yeah, I mean, the definition of fiduciary isn't that controversial. Everyone agrees on that, as far as I know. Where the controversy comes in, at least in part, is are you always a fiduciary? or are you a fiduciary only part of the time, and how can your client tell when you're acting as a fiduciary versus not acting as a fiduciary?
0: You can have the same client, they're paying you the same fee, but sometimes you have to put their interest first and sometimes you don't, is that possible?
3: That that is possible. That's
0: surprising.
3: Yep, and so one of the questions that I and some of my colleagues encourage people to ask when they are interviewing financial planners is not just are you a fiduciary, but are you a fiduciary for me all of the time? Is there ever a time when you will not be a fiduciary for me? So unfortunately, the onus is still on the consumer to understand these issues well enough to ask the right questions to make sure that they get the financial professional who's right for them.
0: And this is something the XY Planning Network is saying you have to be a fiduciary all the time.
3: Yes. Yeah, in order to be a member of the XY Planning Network, uh, you have to sign a fiduciary oath.
0: And this is something that, of course, people off the network don't have to be held to.
3: The problem is not this person's a fiduciary and that person is not a fiduciary. It's just the end consumer doesn't know that and can't reasonably be expected to know that under the current rules where, you know, the the rules do not say you can or cannot be a fiduciary. They say, well, you just have to disclose, right? If there are conflicts of interest, you just have to disclose. So then what ends up happening is consumers are given this 30-page, you know, single spaceline line document with thousands of words in it. In which it is disclosed all these conflicts of interest or the fact that I'm a fiduciary in this moment, not a fiduciary in this other moment, or all sorts of other things that the end consumer really needs to understand. But if it is in the middle of this ocean of legalese, cannot reasonably be expected to understand that. There is still some wiggle room about, well, they're subject to fiduciary when they're providing you with financial advice. But maybe not in some other circumstances, like, for example, when they're selling you a financial product.
0: Uh, sure. And what's the difference from the consumer's point of view? Is it advice to be sold a thing? The consumer may have no idea.
3: I'm not even quite sure how it works. The rules are so murky that even I, I mean, I've been in the industry for nine years now, I'm not even quite sure. Which is one reason that I operate as a registered investment advisor. That is a legal term. And if you are a registered investment advisor, you are subject to the fiduciary standard. It is why I am fee only. That is not synonymous with fiduciary, but it helps align with the fiduciary standard way easier than being you know, a commission-based financial professional. I find that side of the world murky and hard to understand, so I just stay away from it as much as possible so that it's really clear, at least in my practice, that I am a fiduciary. The client's interests do come first. Here's the fee. Nothing is hidden. Everything is transparent.
1: We're back in the studio. We're going to take a break for now, and we'll see you after the break. Stay tuned.
2: Support for Nothing Funny About Money comes from Canon Financial Strategists, an advisory firm that helps organizations and individuals design, maintain, and monitor retirement plans for a better financial future. More information available at Cannon Planners.
0: Step right up, ladies and gentlemen, get your financial advice here. You, sir. Who, me? Of course, yes, you with the ears. Get up over here, up on stage. Now, young man, do you have a financial advisor? Well, no, I never thought. You don't have a financial advisor, you'll be bankrupt in minutes, seconds I tell you. Are you really a financial advisor? I've been calling myself that for many, many days.
1: Great. I'm really worried about... Let me
0: ask you this, young man. Do you love your family? I love... Of course you do. Then I've got just the thing, guaranteed. Wow. It makes you rich, protects your kids, even cuts your taxes. I've got a few questions, though. Just read these disclosures, then.
1: All of this? I don't have time to read all of this. Time is money, dummy. If you don't act soon, you miss out on this one-time offer. This is a high-pressure sales environment. I'll sweeten the
0: pot. Here's a vintage spinner. My grandson doesn't play with it anymore. And you said this is free? I said read the disclosure. And remember, folks, all our products feature vanishing premiums. All right,
1: this sounds way too good to be true. It is. What do you say? Well, I'll do it. I'll sign my life away. Step
0: right up. Step right up. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls,
1: step right up. Welcome back. I'm Michael Thomas, and I'm here with the venerable Matt Garin, and amazing Chris Shoup. Before the break, financial advisor Meg Bartelt was telling us about the fiduciary standard. What other
0: advice does Meg have for folks trying to find an advisor?
3: A general piece of advice: of do your research. There are all sorts of sites out there which give you questions to ask potential financial advisors. You know, when you interview several financial advisors, I mean, you should definitely talk to several of them before you choose one, because even among advisors who are competent and ethical and do all the right things, they're going to have different personalities, different philosophies, different processes, different expertises, and you want to find the one that fits best with you, right? Even if let's just assume everyone is moral and competent and all that, there's still going to be an issue of fit. Find some of those lists of questions on the internet. You know, NAPFA, the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors, has a list of questions. You really want to ask the questions to understand how the advisor is paid, like in total. Are they getting paid anyway but by you? What are your total costs going to be? Because sometimes costs to you are not obvious. They can be the fee that you pay the advisor, but then maybe there's you're also paying some sort of commission, or sometimes the fees that you pay are not obvious. And so you should really be clear on what you're going to pay to whom for what purpose. And then find an advisor who specializes in whatever issues you have. You know, I specialize in working with women who are in their early to mid-career in the tech industry. So I've got specialized knowledge about that industry, both sort of the career elements for women in that industry, and also the technical elements of I know a bunch about how stock options work or restricted stock units. And those are pieces of knowledge that you don't need if you're serving college professors, for example. Mm-hmm.
0: So do your homework. Know who you're working with. It seems like that should be common sense. And yet what we find is a lot of people don't ask these questions.
3: Yeah. You know, I can't blame them. It is, <laughs> it's freaking scary to deal with this stuff. And as I said before, the industry is really murky. How do you know who's trustworthy, who's not, whether this price tag you're going to pay is going to be worth the value you get from it? It's a very ill-defined profession, and some of that ill-definition is intentional in order to you know, sort of pull the wool over people's eyes so they don't know what they're paying and what value they're getting.
0: It is scary. What a scary subject that we are uh, talking about here. <laughs>
3: yeah. It's an important question, the one of like, what should consumers do? But it's also angering because there just isn't a lot. Like, you have to put the entire onus on the consumer to do their homework, and then it ultimately comes down to, and then just hope really hard that you made the right choice because you could get raked over the coals despite your best efforts.
0: Yeah, and that's where my mind goes to having networks of advisors where there is some kind of uh, initiation process they have to go through and some kind right, of Right, some sort pledge. of standard. But, yeah. yeah, and then if I misbehave, I do rake someone over the coals, then I hopefully would lose my membership in that network. I would lose my license or my certificate, and that could then ruin my career. So if there is that onus i think a lot more advisors would behave themselves because they'd think hey i could make 2 grand charging some extra fee to this client but that would mean losing maybe 2 million dollars of lifetime earnings right not worth it never worth it and hopefully resources like the xy planning network and napfa can help consumers find a good one Meg, thanks for giving us some clarity on this. Really appreciate you being on the show.
3: You're welcome. Thank you.
0: Okay. We kind of ended on a cynical note. I know, right? (laughs) But but let's put a positive spin on it. There are networks of advisors who hold their members to high standards. We mentioned the XY Planning Network and NAPFA. There are also credentials like the CFP and AFC that hold financial advisors to a fiduciary standard when they're advising clients.
1: But just because someone is a member of a network or has a credential doesn't mean you shouldn't ask those questions Meg mentioned. In fact, Matt and I have shared this with several of our classes that we teach. There's one class that I teach in particular. Where I, the, the first day of class, I tell students, do not trust me. <laughs> I'm dead serious. That's the, that's the first day. Don't trust me. Because I want them to develop the confidence to be able to ask the tough questions. And if you can ask me the questions now, I know that you're going to leave this space and be able to ask questions like, how are you paid? How much will this cost me? Are you a fiduciary all the time or just some of the time? (laughs) So, like, let me know. Are you willing to sign a fiduciary oath? Let's turn back to something else Meg said. Find
0: an advisor with a good fit. To me, that means two things. First, make sure the person you're working with is actually an expert on the sorts of issues you have in your
1: life. Not all people have these same issues, right? I mean, think about it. Like, I'm a parent. I'm a college professor. My wife is a nurse. We both work for large uh, nonprofits. So we would need someone who understands the needs of parents and the needs of people who have jobs like ours. Exactly. And I'm
0: none of those things, so I probably would want a different advisor. And just because you and I might work with different advisors doesn't mean one of them's better. They're just better for us.
1: Absolutely. Like uh, just as an example, uh, you and I can't even save money in the same retirement accounts, right? Like yeah. I've got a 403B And you've got a, what, a solo 401k or a SEP IRA? SEP IRA. All right. So I bet most people have no idea what that even means, what Uh, that even is, and nor should they. (laughs) So Matt needs to find an advisor who works with self employed people because they need to know about SEP IRAs. And here's another thing really quickly let's say that you're a household who has a special needs child and you're trying to work through the process of thinking about how do we find resources? How do I plan actively? I mean, there are people out there actually specialize in this area
0: find the folks who are specialists in your issues and think of this like working with a lawyer if you're accused of a crime (laughs) you want a criminal defense lawyer you don't want a patent lawyer common sense
1: indeed i hope in your lives you all need more patent lawyers than criminal defense lawyers that is my hope yeah and (laughs) if you are a woman working in tech
0: you might want to work with meg bartelt from Flow Financial Planning. Find her
1: at flowfp.com. Meg also brought up the idea of finding someone who's a good fit for your personality. Because even if someone is an expert in your needs, you also want to get along with this person. Now, this is the thing, too. Not just you're getting along with this person. If you're in a relationship, you want to ensure Mm -hmm. that your spouse gets along with this person as well. Imagine how these financial advising meetings go. It's often
0: just you and your advisor in a room together for an hour. A tiny room, like the one Michael, Chris, and I are in. <laughs> and you've got to get along with this person for that entire period. Yeah, and you've got to get along with their smell. Absolutely <laughs> smell your potential advisor before hiring them. Really? that really? Insist on it. Add it to the list of questions. No, please don't. No. Are you a fiduciary? And can you lift your arm so I may smell like, you? Like
1: Axe body spray is a requirement
2: before <laughs> Or a deal it, breaker. It, I don't know. Or
0: it,
1: or it could be, right? So anyway, we've, we've got another guest coming up, Eric Roberge from Beyond Your Hammock. And I love hammocks. So uh, like Meg, he is a financial advisor with XY Planning Network. Let's hear what he has to say about finding an advisor who is a good match for you.
4: In 2007, in October, when the market was peaking... I decided that it was a good decision to leave my well-paying job and become a financial advisor and have no salary. So I found myself...
0: <laughs> I'm sorry I'm laughing. Chris is, uh, <laughs> Chris is grimacing and putting his hand over his heart. <laughs> you know, looking uh,
4: back, I love it. And when I was in it, it felt like a ride straight to hell.
0: Oh, man. It was
1: yeah.
4: brutal. I was 27 at the time, so I'm trying to convince people that are 60 years old, that I'm the person that they can trust with their money when next to them, you know, Fifth Third Bank and Lehman Brothers are all just collapsing before their eyes. It was just not a good time for me to be trying to pitch my services.
0: Here you are at 27 when many of your friends are probably getting that first big promotion, the first big raise. Your salary goes to zero, How does that feel? How did you cope with that? How did you not just run right back to the investment bank?
4: I had to look at myself in the mirror and say, what am I doing right now? Because I couldn't continue on the path that I was going. That was for sure. And that meant I had to make a change. So making the change itself, I wasn't necessarily beating myself up over it. But what it did, it had me face my own self. When you're 27 years old and you suddenly realize you have no money and you're not making any and your friends are doing pretty well and you have to move home with your parents, you have to look at yourself and say, what am I doing right now and who am I and what do I want to be? So that was the start of a personal transformation for me. And over the next five years, I really came to be the person I am now. But only through that struggle was I able to even – that I had to make the change. So it was perfect, and it was terrible at the same time.
0: Eric's story is my story, and it's the same story for a lot of us who started our careers in the Great Recession, which is not funny. <laughs> it is
1: funny, <laughs> because this is, like, if this does not let you know that even financial advisors can't pick the right time to make the leap, like, if you, nobody true. can predict the market. This Let's think true. about that. There's... Oh, that's so so sobering.
0: So it's not about investment returns. (laughs) It's about behavioral coaching. Of course. Goal setting. Yeah. People like Eric and I who shared similar experiences (laughs) share similar attitudes. And you don't have to share our attitudes. Find an advisor who understands what you went through and what you think about the
1: world. Financial advisors have a unique opportunity to connect with individuals on a very personal level. So that not only are they just providing advice, but the individual that they're working with is feeling heard. And this idea is what I call financial empathy. And when we talk about the intimacy of our finances, that's a space where you don't want to just shut somebody down and be paternalistic at that point in time. So financial empathy, and I just want to be very clear, it's not a hack. It's not this three or four or five step process that you use to get somebody to trust you. No, this is actually a part of who you are and being a fiduciary, I believe, and trying to do the very best by your client by understanding them and how you can get them from where they are to where they want to be. It's important stuff.
0: So we want to leave a lot of time for it. We've got to take a break for now. But when we get back, more from Eric Roberge and more on financial empathy. And also resources
1: for how to find an advisor. Stay tuned.
2: Nothing Funny About Money is supported by listeners like you. You can find more information about how you can support public radio at nothingfunnyaboutmoney.org and wuga.org.
0: Welcome back. Before the break, Eric Robert told us how the beginning of his career as an advisor didn't go so well. So let's
1: turn back to Eric now to learn how these experiences affected how he works with his clients.
0: The typical client that you work with is around your age, and this is a pretty critical phase in someone's life for long term financial success. I imagine one of the pieces of advice you don't give people is quit your well paying job and go to zero salary?
4: Well, I don't say that directly, of course. But I do say, what is it that you're looking to do with your life? Now, let's forget about money for a second. If you had all the money in the world, what is it that you would be doing right now? Because I want to get them at least in touch with that. At that point, when you're in your 30s, cash flow is a big thing. So you're probably starting to make good money in your career because you've been working for 10 years or so. So you have to start handling that extra money that's coming in in a way that helps you grow your assets, saving money, buying a house, having kids, like all these things could be happening at the same time. So prioritizing what's the most important thing from a financial perspective, and then also what's the most important thing from a personal lifestyle perspective, and then meshing those two lists together to make a big picture, this is the action plan I need to take right now. That's really what I do for people
0: not so much exclusively a financial advisor. It's almost a little bit of life coach. It's like the best of both worlds. What do you want? Let me pull that out of you. And now let's actually direct your finances in a way that allows you to do those things.
4: Yes, I think that's exactly right. And my experience bettering myself from a life perspective really
0: contributes to that. You are not only a financial advisor, you're a prolific writer. And one of the articles that you've written recently is for Business Insider. You write a list of things that people in this age group should be doing. And I want to focus on one of these things. Don't spend more, spend better. What do you mean by that?
4: There are so many people out there that are spending money a certain way because they feel that they have to spend that way to, them, to enjoy themselves or to keep up with their friends or to follow the professional athletes or wh- whoever you're looking at, that you need to do this thing a certain way. And that means you need to pay for expensive hotels, take expensive trips, fly first class, all these things that, when it comes down to it, aren't really going to add much, if any, value to your life. You can do the same things for half the cost and get the experience that you're looking for. One specific example I always talk about when this question comes up is my now wife and I, we actually, for a while, worked out of the same office building, so we would walk home. A mile and a half. On the way home, there's tons of restaurants, there's tons of bars, but we don't actually like going into a crowded bar after work and just drinking beers. So we looked for other things to do and we found that there were wine shops along the way. So we started to go to these wine tastings at the wine shops on Friday afternoons and we'd hit, you know, three of them or so and get back home and then we would have tacos. that we bought at the store, right? So those cacos cost $16. The wine was free. The social atmosphere and the fun was also free. So we got the experience we needed, the social, the the wine tasting and learning and educating ourselves on, on wine and just experiencing Boston outside, which is fantastic in the summer. We got all that without paying much at all. Spend better. What are the things that make you say that this was a fun time? And find out if those things can be in something that's less money.
0: Amazing advice. My guest again, Eric Roberge, his website, beyondyourhammock.com. Eric, thanks so much for
1: being on the show.
4: Matt, it was a pleasure. Happy to be back anytime.
1: He provides some great examples of what every planner should be doing, which encapsulates what you should be hearing and how individuals should actually be working with you as someone who's a potential client, especially if you have these fears Especially as you're trying to figure out who you should trust. And I'm gonna be honest with you, your advisor, if you develop this relationship, you're gonna be working with them actually over the rest of your life. And they should care about you and where you're wanting to go and what you're wanting to achieve. And again, that's a great segue into a a TED talk on financial empathy. And the the whole idea behind it is to actually encourage more individuals within the profession to approach the, the way that they work with individuals in this light. One, and then also second, with regards to our household finances, how we think about ourselves in our financial situation and how we work with maybe a partner or a spouse as it relates to money as well. Like this is for you too. So I hope that you enjoy and here's Ted Talk. When we only focus on the numbers, it's even easy to make snap judgments about someone's character, level of education, or their ability to make sound financial decisions. Believe it or not, we even do this in the financial services industry. We make recommendations to clients, and if they don't follow our expert, logically sound advice, then there's something wrong with the client and not our process. We don't spend a lot of time thinking about the whys, why one client didn't complete the spending plan, why another didn't make a harmless call to the creditors. Or why a struggling mother of two refuses to set foot in a public assistance office. But I know better. There's always a story beneath the numbers. And if we would ask, we might find out that the client who did not complete the spending plan didn't do so. Because every time he looks at his expenses, he's induced with a high level of anxiety. Or we might find out that the client who didn't make the harmless call to the creditors to request a lower interest rate on her credit cards doesn't do so because she was raised in a household where she was harshly reprimanded every time she asked for something. As my four-year-old would say, you get what you get, you don't pitch a fit. Or we might find that the struggling mother of two who doesn't want to set foot in a public assistance office doesn't do so because she's ashamed that she's in a place that she never thought she would be in. Empathy does not equal complacency. Let me say that again. Empathy does not equal complacency. Listening to someone's story does not mean... We're accepting excuses for inaction. It's the complete opposite. It's only when we understand the stories of the people we serve that we're able to create solutions where they are and not where we expect them to be. Let's go back to the struggling mother of two. She came in to see me, and after I assessed everything, I made the recommendation that you need to be on public assistance and she would not do it. We went meeting after meeting, and I would think we were getting close, but she just wouldn't budge. And it wasn't until about the third or fourth meeting that she had mentioned that she was embarrassed. And a light bulb went off. I realized that I had had been approaching our sessions entirely wrong. So the next week when she came in, We took more time to talk about how she didn't have to set foot in a public assistance office and that she could apply for those benefits online from the comforts of her own home. We also talked about how when she got her benefits card, that it would be indistinguishable from any other card that she held in her pocketbook. Within about a month's time of that last meeting, she applied for and received the benefits her and her family desperately needed.
0: Michael's talking there about having financial empathy for one of his clients, something that I hope all financial advisors will put into their own
1: practice. Absolutely. So if you love that little snippet of the TED Talk, uh, I'd love for you to go to uh, YouTube, put in Michael Thomas, financial empathy, the story beneath the numbers, and I'd actually encourage you to, to share it as well. And YouTube clips
0: are a great start, but there's more to taking control of our financial lives.
1: A lot of us do need an advisor. Absolutely. If you've decided to get some help, where should you go? There are a few good resources that, that we really, really like. And uh, one of those is, is NAPFA. Matt, you're better with the acronym than I am. <laughs> It's the NAS... <laughs> That's the National
0: Association of Personal Financial Advisors.
1: Yes, 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 yes. And you know what the great thing about NAPFA is that not only are they believers in the letter of the fiduciary ruling, they're believers in the spirit of what it means to be a fiduciary as well. Because there's always going to be situations that come up where it's kind of like, well, it doesn't say that we can't, but they really do abide by, well, this is still wrong. And we're not going to do it. And that's what I love about the NAPFA organization.
0: You can find someone with NAPFA at napfa.org. And if you're in the Athens area, our
1: friends at Elwood and Getz are members of NAPFA. A similar network of advisors is XY Planning Network. Again, these are individuals who actually are trying to serve this middle market. right. So if you're the type of person who doesn't feel as if that you have access to certain planners, there could be someone in the XY Planning Network that would be more than happy to serve you with where you are. Meg Bartelt and Eric Roberge who are on this episode
0: are members of XYPN. You can find them at Mm xyplanningnetwork.com.
1: And then, of course, there's, you know, the certified financial planners. There are accredited financial counselors. I'm an AFC, so I'll definitely shout them out. Uh, You can go to afcpe.org, a financial coach or counselor in that space.
0: And if you want a CFP, check out letsmakeaplan.com. Like all these sites, you just plug in your zip code and advisors near you will show up. Then you can refine your search Find someone who's a good fit for your
1: needs. Absolutely, and this is this is a beautiful thing about the conversation that we're having. We are empowering you. You are not powerless in this process as you're finding the right fit. And one of those one of the ways to do that is through BrokerCheck, and that's org. And this is a site where you can go look up the employment history certificates, licenses, and any violations of a broker or investment advisor. There are a lot of good financial planners out in this space. So check out some of these resources.
0: Find a few people that you think might be a good fit for you as an advisor. Interview them, ask them questions, and make an informed decision.
1: And one quick thing, too, on that, when you interview, please, if you're in a relationship, include your spouse or significant other in the conversation as a counselor, as a coach who is a financial advisor. I just work with so many households where some type of traumatic experience happens and it leaves someone in a precarious position because they don't handle or know anything about the finances at all. So make this a family affair if that's the case. If you're having trouble with any of this, reach out, visit nothingfunnyaboutmoney.org and send us a message. We're happy, as always, to help over email, phone, or in
0: person. And if you help out an organization, we love to speak to an audience. We've given talks literally coast to coast and want to hear from you, too. Man, like, dude, I feel like we can keep going. But is, is that it? I think so. Thanks ah, again, I'm as sad. always, to our executive producer, Chris Shoup, our associate producer, Gene Davis, our audio engineer, Garrett Burke, Meg Bartelt from Flow FP, and Eric Roberts from beyondyourhammock.com. And thank you... For listening. Until next time, peace. You've been listening to Nothing Funny About
1: Money. This show is recorded in the studios of WUGA Athens on the University of Georgia campus. I'm Matt Gorin. And I'm Michael Thomas. Reach out. We'd love to answer your questions and help you achieve your goals. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And connect with us online at nothingfunnyaboutmoney.org.